This is an ABC podcast. As has been said many times on this program before, there is no end to the mysteries of the deep, the fathomless, dark depths of the oceans. Until I saw some of the photos of Nerida Wilson's research, I think I always thought of the ocean floor as a dark place with the odd monstrous fish with sharp teeth and built-in light bulbs. But the research missions that Nerida has led off the coast of the Pilbara in WA and elsewhere have revealed these underwater canyons of explosive, colourful, misshapen weirdness that's wilder and more delightful than any children's book. Nerida Wilson is a marine molecular biologist at the West Australian Museum, and she spends a lot of her time getting acquainted with the unknown in the waters of Antarctica and in the Ningaloo Canyons. It all started when Nerida became engrossed by a sea slug that is as beautiful as a butterfly, a creature that's called a nudibranch. Hi, Nerida. Thanks for having me. Tell me, what does your job title mean? What is a marine molecular biologist? How are you different from a standard marine biologist? <laughs> I think marine biology encompasses so much. So my line of work incorporates uh, using molecular data and DNA. And so I apply that tool to the questions that I might be asking. So when you do that, what, what are you trying to achieve when you are collecting that DNA data? So in the same way that we use all different kinds of, of data to, to find an answer, um, it, it's just another independent stream. So we're looking at the information that's encoded inside cells instead of maybe looking at the shape or colour of an animal. And what's that to do? Is that to connect it to other animals and its descendants and cousins and second cousins and third cousins? Exactly. So uh, working at a museum, we're very interested in biodiversity. And so uh, a lot of my job involves trying to understand what a species is, that, that age-old question, um, and how they're related to each other. And so a great part of my work um, involves constructing phylogenetic trees or family trees for organisms, and that creates a framework we can interpret um, other types of data in. And it's not like you can just walk outside and get an insect off a, <laughs> off a tree, is it? Like the creatures you're studying live in some of the most remote and inaccessible places on the planet. Does this mean you're sort of at the front lines of this kind of research? Well, I am prone to being interested in the weird and wonderful and rare and difficult. So I don't think I do myself <laughs> any favours. <laughs> I mentioned nudibranchs at the start. Do you remember when you first saw your first nudibranch creature? I absolutely do. It was the 29th of March, 1994. Wow. I had a moment. <laughs> <laughs> what happened? Well, I'd been diving for about a year and it's a bit embarrassing um, because really I probably should have seen one by then. But I think I was too busy, you know, learning how to just float in the water and how it all works. Uh, and so, yeah, I'd been diving for a year and, I, and then I saw my first nudibranch and I was just mesmerised, just completely stuck to the spot, couldn't tear myself away. And where was this? Where did you see this? Uh, this was at Mornington Pier uh, in Port Phillip Bay in Melbourne, which is where I learnt to dive. Right. And what did this nudibranch look like? Well, it was pretty big, which is probably why I saw it. <laughs> uh, it was orange. Um, it's called Ceratosoma brevicordatum, the short-tailed sea slug. Um, and it has these sort of blue spots on its back. And I remember thinking, I don't know anything about these creatures. It's got these blue dots. Is it like an octopus? Do they, do they move? Do they flash? And all these questions were just like whizzing in my head and I was just intently staring at this poor beast, <laughs> looking for the answers. <laughs> <laughs> they, they're all look so, they, they all look so different because, you know, in, in preparing for this conversation, I, I looked at some footage, some of which has been shot by, you know, research teams that you've been a part of or led, and no two nudibranchs look alike. They all seem really, really different. What's going on there, narrative? Well, they're really diverse. And I think that's one of the things that attracts me to the group. So there's just so many shapes and sizes and colours and, and you kind of drive yourself a bit crazy. Like this one's a slightly different colour. Is it a different species? Is it the same species, but just variable? And so I, I think people are always drawn to highly diverse groups like butterflies and things like that. And so nudibranchs, I think, kind of that marine equivalent. Yeah, I saw them on a YouTube video described as looking like <laughs> claymation pubic hair and <laughs> a porcupine rolled around 
in candy corn. And, you know, that's true. They do like like both those things. To me, they're like something like some really weird avant-garde fashion show from Paris, like, you know, those really far-out fashion shows. Why, Absolutely. Why are they so... F- I know they're not intending to be flamboyant, but what is what is the is there an evolutionary reason for all this colour and flamboyance amongst these what are in fact sea slugs? Yeah, absolutely. They're they're a product of of millions of years of evolution, and uh, the the reason that they've turned out that way, I guess, um, you know, it's different for for every different slug, but. Um, for the most part, we know that when they lost their sort of protective shell, because they are closely related to shelled snails, they were then unprotected. And so they had developed either before or after they lost the shell, that's the question, chemical defences. And so it's thought that the coloration that they have is, is a bit like warning coloration. But of course, there's cheats and mimics and sometimes you can taste bad but not be toxic and sometimes you're just toxic but look fine. And so there's all these wonderful um, little intricate stories to discover. You mean when you say that there's a kind of a warning in the colour, is that is the creature saying, I'm pretty but I'm not delicious? Is that what you're saying? Well, it's saying, I'm bright, I'm unusual, you might want to think twice. Oh, I see. So it's not it's not a means to attract, it's a means to repel? Exactly, exactly. And you have to remember that these sea slugs don't have a visual system themselves. They do have eyes, but they're very rudimentary. So that all of that sort of spectacular coloration and, and wonderful shapes for other animals, they're, they're not looking at each other. Really? So they can't perceive, they, they've got all this riotous colour going on and they can't perceive it in each other? Correct, yes. They, there's evidence that uh, some, you know, light and dark, they can certainly tell. And, and some of them have a little more advanced uh, vision <laughs> than others, but, but fundamentally they live in a chemical world. So they're tasting and sensing um, chemicals in the sea to move around. Well, that seems vaguely poignant to me. How do they get so diverse then? Because like I say, no two look alike. Are they different species that look diverse or are they that diverse looking within the same species? Good question, and we're still figuring that answer out. Um, Luckily, for the most part, if they look different, they are different species. But as we've applied molecular tools, what we've discovered is that actually sometimes these ones that we thought were, say, a variable species is actually a complex of a whole lot of different species. And so we're like, oh, my God, we had this totally wrong. (laughs) We need to divide the pie up. (laughs) And are the lady nudibranchs different from the gentleman nudibranchs? Are there two distinct sexes like that? Well, I have to tell you that they are both. Um, (laughs) And that's thought to be... uh, a way of dealing with perhaps being rare. So if you encounter another individual, um, if if you're a female and you encounter another female, that might be the only one that you encounter your whole life and that's not very useful for reproduction. So um, they have both male and female uh, reproductive systems in them. They're hermaphrodites. And if you don't mind me uh, getting too personal here, how do they reproduce (laughs) then? How do they actually do that thing with each other? Yeah, so they do cross-fertilise, so they, they must um, what, what find, they really, find a mate. They impregnate yeah. each other? Like most organisms on Earth, No, no, yes. but I mean, just, just, <laughs> but I mean no, no, um, well, I mean, they both make babies with each other. Uh, like that they, I'm not explaining this very well. That's Essentially, okay. they're, they're impregnating each other, are they, effectively? Correct, yes. So they'll, they'll come together, they'll exchange sperm, and they'll separate, go away, and lay fertilised eggs. And what are these eggs like? Most of them are laid in a sort of gelatinous ribbon, and so it can be a spiral or it might be wrapped around a bit of food that they might have been on when they met each other. Uh, yeah, but they're, they're very beautiful little spiral ribbons and different colours as well. So do they go through a kind of metamorphosis? Yes, they do. Like many marine invertebrates, they have a, a larval stage, or most of them do. They may... Uh, come out of the or hatch out of that egg mass and swim around in the ocean and they might feed. There are other kinds that only hatch and swim around for a very small amount of time and they just feed off the yolk that they have inside them. And then there's other ones that actually undergo their larval stage within the egg itself. And so they actually only crawl out, they sort of hatch as little mini-me's and so all of those different strategies means that the animals disperse different distances. And so, yeah, there's all, all kinds of um, implications of, of that sort of behaviour. They're called gastropods. Does that, mean, does that mean that they've got a stomach in their foot or the other way around? Or what does that yeah. mean? Basically, yes. 
Really? How does that work? <laughs> I can't speak from from their viewpoint, uh, but yeah, it's it's just one of those uh, things. They they have a a foot, you know, snails and slugs that you might see on land as well. The the main characteristic is a is having a, a foot, and and their guts are sort of inside there. Yeah. Right. And so do they eat through that foot, or through or, or through something else? No, they they'll have a head and mouth region. Um, yeah. And what do they eat? Well, different animals or different nudibranchs eat different things. So, the group that I work on the most tend to eat sponges, but there are other ones that eat hydroids or sometimes each other. <laughs> we don't talk about that too much. <laughs> uh, there are carnivorous uh, uh, nudibranchs, but um, yeah, for the most part, they're they're feeding on tunicates and and other animals that uh, live on the seafloor. So how, how mixed up does their anatomy get by, by human standards, Nerida? <laughs> I was just about to say, now by whose standards are those? By human standards. Uh, <laughs> well, you know, there's just, as I said, there's such a range of ways to be a nudibranch. Um, so <laughs> some of them have kind of a, a smoothish sort of back uh, and they have their gills um, in a little sort of fluffy bunch at the back. And that's where the name nudibranch comes from, naked gill. So it just means the gills sort of out there. Um, other ones have their gills along the side of the body. Other ones use the surface of the skin to respire. So they might have lots of spikes that just increases their surface area so that they can respire more efficiently. And where is their backside located, if I'm go- if we can indeed call it the backside? <laughs> um, because where is this thing located? Again, in different places for different animals. So... For the ones that have the gills on the back, uh, unfortunately, it is um, right in the middle of that. So they are pooping where they breathe. Not doesn't seem like a great idea until you remember that they're in water. <laughs> and other ones might have it on the side of their body. And yeah, yeah, they kind of do it all. This is why I love them. They're all different shapes and sizes, all different colours. They're any weird story that you've heard, they probably do it. So yeah, they're wonderful animals. And do they have brains as such? Well, they have concentrations of ganglia. So you kind of, again, I'm not a, a neuroscientist, so I don't know what the definition of a brain is exactly. But they, yeah, they certainly have an area where, where nerves are concentrated, but probably not really a brain. <laughs> and is that in their head or is it where they excrete as well? <laughs> <laughs> that, that is in the head region. Yes, bless them. <laughs> so how, how about you? Were you a biologist who just was just thought, oh, well, I'll try marine biology? Or have you always been sort of kind of drawn to the water and what lies beneath it? Yeah, I, honestly, I think I was just born that way. Um, I, just from a very young age, I was just totally drawn to the ocean. You know, I didn't know what was in it, of course, when I was really young, but I just needed to be near it. And I was fascinated by anything that was washed up um, and just, yeah, just had this constant stream of questions in my head about what I was seeing. So I think it was a bit a bit destined, but um, it took a long time to figure out exactly what that looked like. I didn't know any other scientists, no one in my family had been to university. And so I didn't sort of have the words to capture what I wanted to do in the beginning. And that took some time. Was it the beauty of the things that lie in the ocean or was it the mystery of it all? Gosh, I think, I don't think it's an explicit beauty because nature can be very ugly <laughs> sometimes. Um, there's a kind there's... of a wrong beauty in that though, isn't there? <laughs> the ugliness is actually yeah. a form of, it's just kind of a negative beauty. Yeah, no, I, there's just... I don't know how to explain it. I just need to be near the ocean. Um, And so that's, I I just, I had no other choice. (laughs) Did you grow up near the ocean? Not particularly close. Um, I grew up uh, in an area called Bayswater, which is on the outskirts of Melbourne. Uh, It's really different now, of course, to, to when I grew up. Yeah, so it was a big deal to go to the beach and I looked forward to it immensely. Um, my grandfather lived down in Dramana, which is on Port Phillip Bay, and so I loved spending summers there and just going to the beach every day and finding stuff. <laughs> you led a research mission out to the Ningaloo Canyons off the coast of the Pilbara in WA. Tell me about these canyons, where they're located. How, are they way off the coast or is this near the, the Ningaloo Reef? What, what, what is this spot? Yeah, so there's... A- there's lots of canyons along our coastline and most of them have never been explored, you know, examined before. And so these were the two biggest canyons sort of in the middle. Yeah, so, yes, just off Ningaloo. So we have that wonderful gulf and then there's the coral reef and then if you sort of keep going out across the continental shelf, they start in, gosh, I think it's about a 1,000 to 
2,000 metres, and then they... You can sort of imagine like a riverbed has carved out this big canyon. That's not probably how they were formed, but, yeah, it helps you sort of uh, visualise what that might look like. You said 1,000 to 2,000 metres. That's one to two kilometres down. Is it like the Great Barrier Reef? Because the, the, out, the, the outer limits of the Great Barrier Reef, there's this kind of shelf, and then it just plunges right down, 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 down. Is that how it is with these canyons off the Ningaloo Reef? Well, most mostly the continental shelf uh, isn't an abrupt plunge. Uh, it's mostly a bit gradual. And in this case, it's sort of the area where the continental shelf comes in closest to the coast on that Western Australian margin. So it, it is a bit steeper. And of course, the canyon walls themselves can be quite steep as well. So you were going out in, in a special kind of ship. Tell me about the ship and what it was equipped with. Yeah, so the Schmidt Ocean Institute were partners. They obviously provided this incredible ship that houses a remotely operated vehicle called Sebastian. It's an absolutely incredible piece of equipment to work with. They have really talented pilots without whose help we would never be able to do any of the work. And and most of this happens in an area called the control room on the ship. So if you can imagine this big panel of screens, it's where the pilots sit and the science scientists that are running the diver there. And have you got some kind of a sonar system that's sort of mapping the seabed below the ship? There are all kinds of systems happening, yes. So so the ship itself has a series of systems. The, the remotely operated vehicle has its own systems. And so you've got sort of people interconnecting those as well because you always want to know where the ROV is in relation to the ship and where you are in relation to the bottom. And you don't want to tangle up any of the umbilical cords that are connecting uh, those two vessels together as well. Um, as scientists, we just get to do the fun part, but um, there's so much technology and systems supporting that work. It's amazing. So you're sending down a, a robot, this remote operated vehicle. Is this like an underwater drone or is it is it more complicated than that? Well, drones by nature are not attached to anything, whereas the remotely operated vehicle is. Um, so you have this cable that's sending up information so that you can see what it's seeing at the same time. And one of the wonderful aspects of working with the Schmidt Ocean Institute is that they live stream those dives. So as a scientist, you're sort of describing to people what you're seeing as you're seeing it and because, of course, you've never seen it before, so it can be quite challenging. But it was a really satisfying aspect to the work that I... It was a bit unexpected, I think, about how how wonderful it was to be able to share those moments. So this underwater robot I've seen from the camera, it seems to have an arm and a hand of a kind. It has several. Right. <laughs> and the quality of that arm really guides the kinds of things you can do. And these arms on Sebastian were absolutely amazing. So they can spin around, they can grab and hold things. You can put different sort of tools on it and do different things. So these hands can hold a net or take a scoop or gently pick up an organism. It, and, and this, of course, is not only just the system, but the skill of the pilots involved as well. So you set out for the Ningaloo Canyons just as the pandemic was breaking out. What did that mean for your mission? Yes. Well, in the beginning, we thought it might mean that the mission wasn't going ahead. (laughs) So uh, we were very lucky that we were able to push away from the dock as the pandemic was hitting (laughs) WA. So it was just in the nick of time, shall we say. Did McGowan (laughs) let you off the boat when you came back? (laughs) (laughs) Oh, look, the the way that the world had changed Mm. while we were out there was just phenomenal. It was really a, a very strange experience in that way. Firstly, for most of us, we were using this amazing vehicle and doing this incredible science and everyone was really into that. And then sort of in our five minutes of downtime, it's like, talking to people back home going, I'm sorry, what? You're lining up for groceries? What's happening? Help. (laughs) What are we going back to? (laughs) It was just Mm. so hard to imagine, actually. Yeah. So there you are in your little immunity bubble on this ship out uh, off the coast of WA. Absolutely. When you were ready to send the remote operated vehicle, the robot, down, how far down did you send it? Well, they're rated uh, for different depths. So, you know, the systems have... um, testing and specifications and um, things that can go to to certain depths. And Sebastian was rated to 4,500 metres. And uh, that's exactly how far we took it. (laughs) Right. Is that that the the seabed or the canyon, the bed of the canyon? Is that as deep as that? Yeah. So, I mean, there's there's always deeper. (laughs) There's always more. But um, yeah, you... 
as we worked our way on different dives down the canyon, it became deeper. But of course, we we couldn't go past that uh, that magical depth. We didn't want to do anything to ruin no. the robot. Oh my God, you'd never be forgiven. Uh, so yes, but we made sure we we took it right to the limit. So I'm assuming that that depth, of course, there's not a skerrick of surface light, is there? No, no, absolutely not. I've seen the footage, and I think. I think the footage I've seen taken from these deep sea dives in the past has been kind of grainy and, and sort of tantalising. This is not grainy. This mm-hmm. is high res. This is done like a, the the quality of a you know like a movie camera. It's incredibly powerful high res imagery, and it revealed all this intensely coloured life down there. It looks like an alien planet. Like I said at the start, far weirder than anything I've seen in, in a children's book. Were you astonished by what you were seeing down there? Oh, always. I mean, even, you know, as a scientist, you, you know, you do have an idea of some of the kinds of creatures, but as you say, seeing them there alive, doing their thing in real time was just astonishing. And, and that, that resolution of the imagery we were seeing at the time, I mean, we could zoom in on a, a rock wall and going closer and closer, and you're looking and looking for things, and you forget this is, you know, we're trying, you go to pick it up and you're like, oh, that's so small, and you're looking at something that's millimetres long, several kilometres away (laughs) under the ocean. It's just absolutely mind-blowing. It's almost like, you know, when you're looking at something really closely and you whack your head against a glass, it's a bit like that. It's like, oh, my God, (laughs) I forgot. (laughs) Right. (laughs) So you're able to see creatures at that level of detail. Absolutely. Which, which you normally would do with a, a land-dwelling creature, you know, under a microscope almost. Are yeah. you, is, is it revealing all kinds of things, being able to see small creatures at that kind of dusty level of detail? Well, it, it actually kind of blows your mind a bit about how many things are there and what those things are. Because and many scuba divers will probably appreciate, even when you're just diving, you know, most of the time you're distracted by big things. But if you stop and just look at a rock really closely and just really sit and wait and allow your eyes to sort of focus and separate all of the small things, there's so much life. There's so many things. And that's not that different um, on some of the rock walls that we were looking at down, you know, kilometres down. There's stuff and it's like, what is that? Is that a little bit of sponge? Is that a hydroid? Is that a bit of bacterial matter? What is that? And there's a little limpid and, and, and you really, if you spend the time, you can understand and start to appreciate those really small things. And and obviously the way that we've been able to sample a deep sea in the past has been a lot more um, coarse. You know, we've used trawls and things like that, which you know, the the size of a net, you're not getting those really small things. And if you do, they're probably quite damaged. And so this was an incredible way to appreciate the, the fine detail and, the, and, and realise how diverse some of those areas are. This is the thing I couldn't figure out. It's in the inky, inky depths where there's not a bit of surface light. And God knows when you... You know, put your headlights from the, the, the robot on these the creatures. It might have been the first bit of natural light they'd ever seen. I'm, well, any, any kind of light they'd ever seen. So if that's the case, why are they so colourful if nothing can be seen of their colour down there? It's a great question. I'm not really sure. Um, sometimes traits uh, like colour are retained from from ancestors. So oh. if those animals evolved from brightly coloured, shallow organisms, it might be let's say, cheapest to just keep being like that rather than, you know, if there's no reason for you to lose that, you might just keep it. Um, so sometimes things things that you see are not a product of selection, but they're just sort of a, a leftover. So again, they're blind to their own beauty. Yes, yes. But it seems, again, kind of really, I don't know, poignant that they can't see how lovely they are down there, yeah. with all that explosive colour that they have. It seems really yeah. amazing. It was on that expedition we've just been talking about through the Ningaloo Canyons off the coast of WA that you discovered something that looks like it's from another planet, a siphonophore. What is a siphonophore? It's a very interesting animal. <laughs> um, they live in in the mid-water column, so they, they don't live on the seafloor where we were looking mostly. Uh, and they're colonial animals, which is a little bit strange. So they 
They do have two parents like other organisms, but the way that their body is made up um, is sort of made up of a, a colony of, of different types of cells all working together to form one organism. What? <laughs> what? What do you mean? Are you saying that <laughs> if they, if they've got a hive mind or something? Or what, what are they doing? Are they? Are they? So it's a colony of animals, not a single creature. Then, or is it a single creature? Or are you having problems with the, the taxonomy on that one? Uh, look, I'll let the philosophers kind of head yeah. off with that one. But um, they are a single organism, um, so that has been established. Uh, it's essentially that different groups of cells kind of decide to do different things. So one group will do feeding, one group will do reproduction, blah, blah, blah. But they all come together to form this one organism. And, and one that people might be more familiar with is a blue bottle or Portuguese man of war. So that's also a siphonophore. It has that big float. It has some thick tentacles for feeding, the stingy bits, um, and some other ones for reproduction, and et cetera. So that's sort of a something you can compare to. But you just described it as a collection of autonomous creatures that sort of work <laughs> together. So it is like a hive then, a, a beehive? I, yeah, look, I'm, I'm probably not going to delve too far into that. But uh, Why not? You're a taxonomist. Isn't this, <laughs> isn't this right up your alley, this sort of stuff, narrative? <laughs> not that maybe the philosophy of what constitutes a thing. is Conversations with Richard Feidler. Hear more conversations anytime on the ABC Listen app or go to abc.net.au slash conversations. So this siphonophore you spotted on this mission, how big was this creature? Well, that is the question, and it's not one we've answered satisfactorily yet. If you ask the internet, you'll get an answer, but um, it's not a, a scientifically determined answer. So it was big. Let me repeat, it it was big. And so when we came across it, you know, there just was this weird feeling, you know, this otherworldly creature that was just enormous drifting across our path. It was just an incredible feeling. It looks like the picture I've seen, like a big sort of curling, winding, vast bit of string or something, or a, or a, is that a tentacle? What is that? Yeah, it, it's the body. This particular siphonophore, they have a float at one end, um, like you can imagine it sort of being the head end. Like the blue um, bottle does, right. Exactly. They have a float and then they have this long string of cells. And in this case, it was arranged in a feeding posture that was like a big spiral. So it just looked like this big UFO kind of thing <laughs> floating in the water. It was just incredible. Very strange. And, and when you say feed, how does it feed? So it has little stinging cells as part of uh, its long collection of bits. And so it will just grab other little creatures out of the water. If a human swam in the middle of it, what would happen? <laughs> could, it, could it give you a nasty sting? Look, maybe. <laughs> uh, certainly the human would probably be crushed by the pressure before any little sting would be a problem. Oh, of course, right. <laughs> okay, it lives that far down, does it? Yes. In this case, it was around 600 metres of water when we came across it. And when, what was your reaction and that of your colleagues when you saw this gigantic looping thing? Just awestruck. You know, we had kind of been working all day, we'd collected samples, um, we stopped live streaming and the remotely operated vehicle was coming up to the surface. And so for the most part... The scientists had scattered in all different directions, getting the lab ready for the samples, uh, getting a snack, you know, waiting for the next bit of work, is sort of this little window of opportunity to get some things ready. And there's screens all around the ship. So anywhere you are, there'll be a way to see what the ROV is seeing. And so really it was in this sort of little in-between time, on our commute to the surface, shall we say, mm. and the pilot just noticed this thing. And honestly, if it weren't for his sharp eyes, we wouldn't have seen it at all. And so he sort of headed in its direction. And as it sort of came into view on all of these screens, everyone just sort of stopped what they were doing and just sort of looked and 
you know, you'd hear these little gasps and people were getting other people's attention and and then people started pouring into the control room and, and we were just all awestruck, you know, just never seen anything like it. Was it lovely or was it a bit sinister? Oh, no, it was lovely. <laughs> anything weird is lovely. <laughs> yeah, of course. Indeed. You've been down into the ocean depths yourself in person inside a submersible, one of those kind of little subs. How different is that for you when you're in a vehicle yourself going down into the deep, dark waters? And I'm, I'm asking this because I'm never going to get into one of those things myself, and uh, I kind of like to experience these things vicariously. Tell me about that, what that is like to climb into one of those things, Narada. Yeah, I mean, the first time that I did that, I was a pretty newly minted PhD student. So, you know, I was saying yes to everything, <laughs> every experience and opportunity <laughs> I could get. And who wouldn't? But look, a little part of me was a bit worried about being essentially in this metal sphere that just drops like a pebble into the ocean. I mean, it's not normal. (laughs) But before you do a dive, uh, you do inductions to working the equipment and you go into the the sphere and, you know, you you just get a feeling, am I going to feel claustrophobic? How is this going to be? And and like most things, once you know what it's going to feel like, it's fine. And the weirdest emotional moment for me was when we were sort of closed in on the back of the ship and as it's being lifted into the water, when you first hit the water surface, you're sort of sloshing about and it felt very weird and not very comfortable. But as soon as we started descending, it was just smooth and comfortable and fascinating. Like, you know, there's little windows and my eyes were basically pressed against that window for the whole, you know, five or six hours we were down there, <laughs> just in case there was that monster, right? You wanted to be the one to see it. You don't want to blink and miss it. <laughs> the giant squid. Let's see the giant squid. <laughs> totally. And you could, right? I mean, we spend so little time with our eyes in the deep sea. There's so much to be found and known as that siphonophore gave us reason to understand. So you've got to keep eyes out there. What, how does what you're seeing change as you go down and it gets darker and weirder? Well, to save battery power, we don't usually put the lights on when you're going oh, down. Oh, really? So you're just going down into, into total darkness and then... What happens? Do you, do, you, do you reach the bottom or close to the bottom before you turn the lights on? Yeah, so so the systems let us know when we're sort of close to the bottom and then, you know, obviously we slow down. <laughs> and then so before you settle on the bottom, the lights go on and that's a beautiful moment where suddenly you can see things and, and the sub settles down on the bottom and then there's a series of checks and things on the equipment and in those moments, again, you're, you know, my eyes were just scratching around in every direction. But the first thing that I saw on that dive was a stalked crinoid and, and they're what is wonderful, that? What is that? wonderful creatures. So they're a relative of a sea star, but their arms are sort of feathery and this particular kind is on a stalk. So it's basically a stick sticking up with a sea star made of feathers upside down on its back. <laughs> and anyway, I love those animals. And so for that to be the first thing that I saw was just like that first second was enough. I could have just taken that to the grave and be happy. And did it speak to you? <laughs> did it say, welcome narrator to the ocean floor? <laughs> it did not. It okay. was just in too awkward right. a position to sample. <laughs> I had to move on. <laughs> and where was this taking place? So this was on the South Pacific rise. So it's a part of the seafloor sort of parallel with South America in the East Pacific, sort of towards Antarctica, it's the, the southern sort of Antarctic Right. Part. So is that near East Island, that, that part of the world? Yes, yes. So I think we our trip um, began in Tahiti and ended on East Island. So that was sort of where we had to fly in to meet the ship. It was really out in the middle of nowhere. <laughs> You're so far from anything there. And yes. then so far below the surface too. Uh, look, the the dive, the first submersible dive that I did was on an area where no one had dived before. So I think we were looking for hydrothermal vents because someone had done some water chemistry and, and realised there might be some in that area. And they're so, typically often sites where there's a huge amount of life gathered around those hydrothermal vents, those hot water vents that are in the bottom of the ocean. That's area. right. That's right. The low ACs. And so because the areas where we know hydrothermal vents occur, people dive there all the time. So the idea that this was a place that no one had ever looked at before, no human eyes had ever seen the bottom there, that blew my mind. I felt so humbled and so incredibly lucky to experience that. 
the other scientist in the submersible with me was a very experienced, well-worn kind of submersible diver. And an he old salt, right. An old salt, exactly. <laughs> yes. And he was absolutely losing his mind as well. So I thought, oh, this is good. I, this is as amazing as I think it is. <laughs> and how long do you stay down there? It depends a lot on the depth and, and all kinds of things. My first dive was about five and a half hours. Mostly they like to do it in daylight hours because if your little submersible pops up and they can't find it and bring it back to the ship, that's very bad. So they like to do that in daylight hours. And how does the time pass while you're down there? So swiftly. <laughs> Just blinked, you know. I couldn't believe it was over. It was and when incredible. you come up in the afternoon, is it a bit like waking up from some strange dream? <laughs> yeah, mm. it very much is. But of course, because it was my first dive, there are lots of traditions on boats and so... Greeting a new diver with icy cold water and all kinds of other things being poured on them is, is part of some of those traditions. Really? So, so it wasn't quite a sweet dream. <laughs> but yeah, wonderful, wonderful experience. So right now, Nerida, you're researching into sea dragons. Yes. Now, these are a kind of a seahorse, but with like leafy appendages. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. They're very closely related to seahorses. In the, they're both in the same family, Signathidae. And where are they found? Sea dragons themselves are only found along the southern coastline of Australia. And lots of people don't understand that because you can see them in aquaria all around the world because they're so charismatic. But they really are special. They're like, you know, a marine koala. <laughs> <laughs> a lot less fluffy, though. What is a seahorse anyway? Is it a, is it a fish or a crustacean or something else? Um, yeah, so sea dragons and seahorses are fish. And, and they don't look a lot like normal no. fish, so you can be forgiven for not realising straight away. They, they have fins, they're just very small and transparent and they're not very strong swimmers. And those snouts that they have, do they feed from them as you'd expect they would? Yes, yeah. So they use them as a suction tube and they sort of suck in little crustaceans that they feed on. So these sea dragons you're looking at that only exist off the coast of Australia as far as we know, why do they have these beautiful leafy appendages. Is that to propel them through the, through the water? Uh, we suspect it's for camouflage. So there are three different species of sea dragon. One of them is known as the weedy or common sea dragon, and that has just a few appendages, um, little leafy bits on it. Then there's the leafy sea dragon, which of course by its name you might guess it has a lot more appendages. It looks very much like a piece of algae. And then there's the ruby sea dragon that uh, doesn't appear to have appendages. But we believe they're for camouflage. They are, if you're looking for one and you see one and you take your eyes away for a minute and look back, it's very hard to find again. Right. <laughs> so it's very effective camouflage, at least against scientists. <laughs> Did you have a role in the identification of the ruby sea dragon? Yeah, so I was part of the team that discovered and described that species, which is yeah, amazing. You certainly don't expect to find a new species of sea dragon. That's just something that happens. <laughs> and that, that's like a blood red sea dragon too. Correct, yeah. yes. What are you doing with these sea dragons you're, you're looking at and finding? So one of the things that's quite amazing, because they're such charismatic and well-loved animals, I think they're the marine emblem of, of different states and there's, you know, sea dragon festivals and all this kind of stuff. But we really know very little about their lives. Uh, we don't know how many there are in the wild, for instance. We don't necessarily know how long they live or how much they reproduce. All of these things that are really important to understand for conservation. And we certainly, you know, have some suspicions that they all fare, you know, fairly poorly with climate change. And so we need to get in a position where we can monitor them um, much more effectively than we do at the moment. How long do they live for? Well, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know the answer really? to that, but I'm really keen to find out. One of the things we're trying to do is is understand this data, but but you can't go and just swim around and find them. They're like hard to, to see underwater, right, and they and live, also live alongside individual ones for twenty years. And yeah, yeah, right. yeah, exactly. Pop in and check for it every day. Yeah, yep. Yeah. But turns out that some people do. <laughs> really? <laughs> yeah, some people are incredibly just. Oh, I don't even know how to describe it. Just so loyal to their little dive site and there might be a sea dragon there and they take photographs. I mean, everyone takes photographs of sea dragons if they can. They're just stunning animals. But this provides us with a way of obtaining some of that data because the patterns on their faces and bodies are quite unique, like a fingerprint. And so you can actually 
have different photographs of the same individual sea dragon and, and match them together because of those patterns. Right, you can't tag them, obviously, can you? Well, or, or maybe not, I don't know. You can, and, and people have, but, but that's very small scale and it's very invasive to the animal. You have to, you know, catch it and put something on it and that what you put on it might um, endanger it, so it might, you know, get predated upon more easily because of the tag you put on it. You know, these days we're trying to do a lot of that stuff um, a bit more remotely. Tell me how you're using AI to connect these different species of sea dragons, Nerida. So we're using it to link individuals of sea dragons because when I mentioned that they have unique kind of fingerprint patterns on them, that's all well and good. But if you're a human being comparing this photograph and that photograph and that photograph, it's incredibly time-consuming. And we wanted to be able to study these organisms across their whole range, which is across the whole south coast of Australia. And so that just takes too much time. And so we've been able to apply artificial intelligence tools that will compare all of the images for us and then give us a short list. And so is this like this Is this like this creepy <laughs> surveillance technology that's cropping yes. up in totalitarian states, essentially, like facial recognition? It's exactly that. Wow. Why, while most people feel quite uncomfortable about it, um, it's really, really useful. <laughs> you can use AI for good. The ethics of AI is a, a whole other thing. But um, in this case, we hope to use it to be able to conserve the dragons better because you know, we're unable to go out and, and dive and count them. But if we can make counts using these images, we'll have a much better idea of how many individuals there are in the population and over time, whether they're decreasing or increasing, uh, et cetera. So, yeah, incredibly helpful tools and it's really exciting. Like, it's super fun, that project. It's just really, really motivating. You've been to the oceans around Antarctica many times, Nerida. Yes. How do you get creature samples from those waters? I'm assuming it's too cold to go down in a submersible? There, there has been a little submersible work in Antarctica, but it's mainly the, the weather that prevents that from happening. So to be able to be to put um, equipment over the side and, and bring people back safely, it needs to be fairly calm. And, and obviously there's quite windy um, and difficult big swell conditions down there. So it's not the greatest tool for doing that. So how do you collect samples when you can't go into the ocean? Yeah, so for most of the work that I do, we use trawling. So we'll put over a, a small-sized little sled um, and pick up some animals from the seafloor and bring them back. And it's it sounds quite destructive, but you have to remember too that these organisms have evolved with icebergs dragging over the bottom regularly, and so it's it's not a process that's particularly unusual for those organisms. Some people dive, though. Uh, hats off to them. Um, very impressive, but it's not something I'm capable of doing in those temperatures. Would we be surprised by how much life is down in, on the floor of those oceans, given that you said, uh, off, well, off the much, much more temperate waters of uh, Ningaloo Canyons, there's so much life all over the rock walls there. Are, are these barren places? Because Antarctica is a desert officially, isn't it? So are there, is there plenty of life in the waters of Antarctica? It absolutely rivals a coral reef in areas. Really? It's wow. so thick and so rich with life. It's just incredible. Yeah, absolutely. Is it any warmer down there than it is on the surface? I, I, I've got no idea. I, I'm just wondering, what's it like down there? Um, it can be really quite cool. So because of the um, salinity of the water, it can actually be minus one or minus two, but still be liquid. So you're playing a role as a kind of an evolutionary detective down there. What are you trying to figure out about Antarctica? Yeah, so this is really crazy um, in the sense that, you know, we normally look at genetics to understand, you know, how related animals are to each other. But there's a lot more that you can do. And so in this particular case, we, we're trying to use genetics to help answer questions in another field. So we're really talking about multidisciplinary, transdisciplinary kind of work. Uh, so obviously the world is quite concerned with climate change and, and we don't know what's going to happen in the future with Antarctic ice sheets. So we're pretty concerned about how much water they might contribute and how much sea level rise they might contribute. But the models that we have are not very sensitive um, in, in those areas. So we have some, some work to do there. And you think, well, how can a, a marine invertebrate help with that? <laughs> it's a little wild, right? But if you imagine that, you know, for every organism, 
you know that you get half of your genetic material from your mum and half from your dad. But of course, they had half from their mum and half from their dad as well, and so on and so on. And so in any organism, you have in their genes the history of the species, actually. And so if you have some really fancy statistics, you can get at some really way back processes. In this case, what we're trying to understand is uh, connectivity across an ice sheet. So, so the West Antarctic ice sheet was thought to collapse, fully collapse in, at some periods in the past. And that would allow um, water movement and organisms to move across from one side to the other, from the Weddell Sea to the Ross Sea. And when you say in the past, are we talking like a thousand years or a hundred thousand years or something like that? More like millions, yeah. Oh, really? Yep. Right. Yep. And so if you have organisms from these two places and you look in their genetics and the genetics tells you, actually, we exchanged a lot of genetic information at this point in time in the past you know that that barrier that normally sits between them wasn't there then. Otherwise, they would have to migrate all the way around Antarctica to, oh, have, you know, to take some genes and genetic material around there. So that that's, signal would not be maintained. And so what we can do is sort of look back in the past and be like, okay, at what time point was there connectivity between these populations? And if that's the case there was no ice sheet. So what were the other conditions at the time? Uh, you know, and, and that means we can improve our models looking backwards, so hind casting. And that's how we can improve models for forecasting. So it's a crazy sort of um, way of, of looking at uh, a difficult question, but uh, super interesting. And uh, we'll, we'll see. I'll have to tell you how that goes. So Nerida, are you, are you telling me that by investigating the the genes of sea creatures, tiny sea creatures in different parts of Antarctica, embedded in that DNA code is a kind of report of what happened or what the place was like a million years ago in, in Antarctica. There's a kind of a there's information there, a report embedded in that, in that genetic information that can, that can bear witness to what the world was like around Antarctica a million years ago. Exactly. And from that, you can maybe project into the future. But we need answers quickly, right? All these new species you've been finding over the years, you then have to go through this process of identifying them, making sure they're actually new species or newly discovered species, if that's the word for it. That's taxonomy, isn't it? How long does that process take to identify something positively as a new species? Well, it really depends on the group that you're looking at. So if it's a very well-known group um, and the, the species have been sort of looked at recently, you can be much surer of your conclusions more quickly. But if it's a group that no one has really looked at for a long time or, you know, maybe applied molecular tools to, it can take a really long time. So it, it's very relative. Also depends on how much time you have. <laughs> so, yeah, anything from, you know, a couple of years to, you know, decades. You know, in Iceland, there's this thing called the Book of Icelanders, the Icelandica book, and it goes back a thousand years because they have verifiable reports on the names of people who came to Iceland when the Vikings first settled there um, wow. a thousand years ago. And it's, they've been keeping track of everyone, every Icelander ever since and their connection. And, and this has now become part of a larger genetic project called Decode that's been going on there. Is there something like that for all the species of the world? Oh, this is maybe a really naive question, but is there some kind of international database that connects one species to the next through that incredible web of genetic connections? Is there such a thing? Uh, maybe not quite in that way, but our system of naming species, our classifications, is supposed to reflect the evolutionary relationships of animals. And so, you know, all of the species that are in one genus you know, we give it that name because we're saying that they're more closely related to each other than species in a different genus. And so just even the simple naming of an organism should uh, give, give information about how they are related. But, uh, yeah, there are lots of other databases um, with names but not complete and, and 
we're really getting there. It's amazing now compared to when I started as a student. But yeah, it's it's not as uh, tightly controlled as you might think. I do remember from high school biology that it goes like kingdom, phylum, class, order, family, genus, species. That goes down that sort of chain of of um, categories like like that. But yes. of course, when when a new creature is or, or emerges or a new distinct new species comes into the world, it doesn't sort of go well. There's there's not someone to say right. Well, you're going over there, and that's the that's the the kingdom, phylum, class, order, et cetera, et cetera, That you're you're going to be part of. Given the weirdness of the world, you're <laughs> you're researching there at a, in the stranger parts of the ocean. Do you find creatures that blur those distinctions that sort of don't necessarily that sort of live on the edges of various categorizations like that? Yeah, look, every time we discover something new, we're learning something. And so it doesn't really matter if you're applying molecular tools or morphology or chemistry or whatever you're doing to understand that organism. You'll either find that it does fit neatly within a group or it doesn't. And if it doesn't, then you have to take a new look at how that group is organised. And so you might have to make changes in other organisms as well, in their names, to reflect this new bit. So, yeah, it's constant revision. Now, just finally, seeing as we're talking about the naming of new species, there are some species out there that have been named after you, including one that wears a cardigan. What is this, what is this animal? What is this creature? <laughs> yes. So there's a, a beautiful little slug called Ox- Oxymoe Meridae. <laughs> Um, and they're just, they are, I have to say, I mean, I'm not biased at all, but they are truly beautiful, uh, bright green animals. And they have a shell, even though they're a slug, they have a shell, but their mantle folds up and around it. Um, like and a cardigan. And, yeah. and, and do you fancy wearing a cardigan in your downtime yourself, Neridan? <laughs> Look, I have been partial to a green cardigan <laughs> and uh, my friend who uh, works on those organisms noticed that. Um, in, in the official paper, it just says, you know, it's to honour my contribution in setting up this expedition and going and collecting that organism. But the reality is it's all about my cardigan. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, fantastic. How lovely to speak with you, Nerida. Thank you so much. It's been such a pleasure. Nerida Wilson is a marine molecular biologist at the Western Australia Museum. I'm Richard Feidler. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to a podcast of Conversations with Richard Feidler. For more Conversations interviews, please go to the website abc.net.au slash conversations. My stand-up was mostly me talking about experiences of racism, you know, and I had no shortage of material. Comedian and two ASIO agents walk into a bar. Sounds like a joke, but it's a true story. And the comedian, he's being questioned over the likelihood of his Islamic radicalisation while ordering the most expensive thing on the menu. Uh, We would joke about ASIO following us. We would have phone conversations pretending to be ASIO. We'd call up each other and pretend to be ASIO just to scare the other person. That's just one of the stories that we have for you on the latest season of Days Like These. The little nun said, What to be sure? You'd never be able to carry that. It's way too heavy. Just post it. And I felt so much guilt. I actually saw the bolt coming towards me. I thought, you know, someone's got me with a bazooka. I didn't think I had that many people I'd rejected. <laughs> Seeing her on the screen, this gorgeous little jelly bean... Like, in my heart, I knew I had to give it a chance. I'm Elizabeth Coolass. Join me on Days Like These for stories about the day when everything changed. Well, they said, oh, there's something wrong with your home. And it's like, well, duh, right? Like I'm in a wheelchair. Episodes drop weekly starting February 9.